Mark chapter 12 is our scripture this morning. If you've been following along, the songs we've sung today, the songs fit our theme of resurrection that we find uh, Jesus dealing with in Mark chapter 12 as we pick it up at verse 18, reading through verse 27 this morning. Jesus teaching to us about the resurrection, and it comes to us through another challenge. Once again, somebody is coming with a challenge to him, seeking to, in some way to cast dispersion upon Christ. Let's read then God's word, Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And a third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again ask for God's blessing. Dear Father, we thank you again that we have opportunity to read your word. Thank you for preserving that through the centuries. Thank you for the firm answers that we should be able to take from this. Pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob this morning and give him your words to speak, that he may teach your truths to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Three things. Three another's from this passage. Another challenge or another confrontation, we could call it. Secondly, another illustration. And thirdly, another revelation. So we're going to see the challenge, the confrontation. Secondly, the illustration that Jesus gives to us. And then thirdly, his revelation of truth that he provides for us. This time, the the confrontation comes through another group. It's not uh, the same group that has been hanging around uh, that we've been dealing with, nor is it the Herodians or the Pharisees that we encountered last week, Sunday morning. This is another group. They are called Sadducees. They are identified for us right away in verse 18. Sadducees were the, from the upper crust of society. They were wealthy and they were worldly. The high priest 
come from the Sadducee group. You, you don't have uh, high priests that come from the Herodian group or from the Zealots or even from the Pharisees. They are the priestly line taking down from Aaron, but have become, as I said, very wealthy. The temple and the temple grounds are their special territory. It is here where they exercise power. They don't have much influence outside of that. Right? So, so understand, because of who they are, because of the, where they come from, uh, and because of their basic way of life, which was often very rude, very, they were very uppity, they, they, they thought themselves much better than the average Jewish person, uh, they were not well-liked. Pe people weren't going, man, I just love the Sadducees, don't you? People had a, a natural dislike. All the stuff that was going on a few weeks ago when Jesus was cleaning out the temple, you know, all the high price, the people know this. The people recognize that they're being taken advantage of, but the Sadducees rule, that's their grounds, the whole of worship is controlled by this Sadducee group, and they hate them. They can't stand them. That's who now comes. These powerful religious people who are very mean-spirited. Now, religiously, these folks are those who hold only to the first five books of Moses. Uh, now, it's not like they dismiss the rest of Scripture, but as far as official authority, as official teaching, if it's not found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're not buying it. It's got to be in those books, or it is not truth. So the, the Pharisees, who, who basically accepted the whole of the Old Testament, along with all the rabbinic teachings are, are thought of as, from a Pharisee point of view, fools. It's foolish to go down that route. You ought to stick to just the books of Moses. William Hendrickson makes this comment in regards to the Sadducees of that day. They were crassly materialistic. So it's not just that they were materialistic, but they were crass about it. In other words, they were showy. They were in your face about it. They wanted you to know that they were wealthy. And they wanted to make you feel insignificant. This is the group. Right? This is the group that now comes. And Sadducees came to him. But this is a different attempt. Something else is going on. And, and it kind of goes back to this whole idea of superiority. As one commentator said, what, what's happening in this passage is, is more that the upper crust, the wise religious leaders, are now coming to prove the foolishness of this country bumpkin from Nazareth. That's more their attempt. They're just going to prove how foolish he is. They're just going to prove how ignorant he is. 
It's not so much to prove that he's wrong. They just want to prove this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's foolish to hang on to these teachings. So they're coming with theological question. It, it's a little bit different than what we've dealt with as far as the other challenges of Jesus. And the theology that is being challenged is the challenge of the resurrection. That's what they're centering on. Now, we're already told they don't believe in it. They don't accept it. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But the, the, the Sadducees have nothing to do with the belief in resurrection. But they're coming with a theological question. They're taking a biblical teaching and turning it into a dilemma. Now, let's go back to the biblical teaching. Okay? Their reference was made in the passage, but let's go back. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Because they're not making something up here. It's not like they're coming to Jesus and saying Moses said and that somehow or another they've got it all messed up. They don't. They have it very accurately described. And that would be true, right? Because we're in Deuteronomy. What do the Sadducees accept? The books of Moses. What's one of the books of Moses? Deuteronomy. Part of the Torah. So... We read, starting at verse 5 of Deuteronomy 25, here's the teaching they're re referencing. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed, shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, okay, so here's the, there is an out. It's not, well, what happens if you just don't want to do it? What happens if you're the second brother and you're like, I don't want to marry her. I, I don't want to do that which also meant you had a vested interest in who the oldest brother married, too. Okay, you might be, I don't think you want her, okay? Because you got to be thinking you might end up marrying her, too. But what if you don't want to? Okay, verse 7. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal, off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So it gives you a little bit more insight into the book of Ruth and what's happening when you come to that fourth chapter and you have the relative who is unwilling to, to take up the responsibilities with Ruth. So you see, they're not making it up. This, this is a theological teaching. 
This was a command of Moses. But they, you see, have turned it into a dilemma. So they take a biblical truth and turn it into a dilemma. Well, now we've got this woman. She marries seven brothers in order, oldest to youngest. None of them produces a child, so it's got to keep going to the next one. Okay, that's biblical, doing, the, doing that which Moses command. But now they all die, and now we get to heaven. Now we get to glory. Now we have the resurrection. So what's she going to do in glory? Which one she is her husband? They turn it into a, a dilemma. Now before we get all over their case about that, understand how oftentimes we do this as well, right? We take a biblical teaching and then we turn it into some sort of dilemma when the dilemma doesn't really exist. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, right, thou shalt forgive 70 times 7. We turn it into a dilemma, right? Well, am I supposed to forgive now? Am I supposed to forgive if they don't ask for forgiveness? Am I supposed to forgive if they kidnap my child? Are they, am I supposed to forgive this? Am I supposed to forgive? We turn it into a dilemma when the biblical teaching is very clear. Forgive. We do that as well, don't we, with homosexuality today. The biblical teaching is clear. It's not that the Bible isn't clear about this. But then, well, you know, but he professes Christ. You know, he goes to church faithfully. Isn't it okay he just continues in that then? Is God really going to say, no, you can't love that other man? We turn it into a dilemma when the Bible is very clear. We do that with the Lord's Day, right? The Bible is clear. There, there, there's, it's not that the Bible is unclear about how the Lord's Day is to be handled. But we throw in all sorts of dilemmas, false dilemmas, to somehow erode the teaching. We can do that with adultery. We do that with divorce. We do that with stealing and our income tax. We come up with all sorts of ways to take away from the truth that is given, create a dilemma for the purpose of eroding the truth. That's what the Sadducees are doing. What are you going to say, Jesus? What are you going to say? Well, she's married to all seven in the resurrection? Whoa, boy, now we've got a problem, don't we? So they come to him with a theological question, taking a biblical teaching, turning it into a dilemma. That's their approach. But there is one other angle going on here. They're trying to, uh, we use the proverb, kill two birds with one stone. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to take out Jesus, but they're also trying to take out their, as it were, arch enemies, the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees and Pharisees are always button heads. They do not get along because they view things different theologically, life-wise, culturally. So the Sadducees' point is this. The Pharisees failed to take out Jesus, right? That's what we had in the paying taxes. Verse 13, some of the Pharisees Okay, came with that once again, shall we pay the taxes? Okay, how does it end up? 
They marvel at them. They're, they're like, the Sadducees go, we're better than Pharisees. We're superior to Pharisees. If we take out Jesus, we've done something the Pharisees haven't. The Pharisees are unable to crack this. But if we do, then think of the superiority we can claim over these Pharisees. At the same time that we get rid of this problem who's upset the tables and the money changers of our temple, of our financial backbone. So what happens? How does Jesus deal with this? Okay, that's where we pick it up at verse 24. Jesus says to them, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong on two accounts. You're wrong because you're ignorant. You're ignorant of God's power, and you're ignorant of God's word. Now turn to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Three. Acts chapter 23. We have this little footnote much later on, obviously, in history. But this little footnote is given to us about the Sadducees. Acts 23, verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, no, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So now you see some more what, what's, what's going at these two. But what did we just learn about Sadducees? They deny, except for the existence of God, the supernatural. They deny miracles. They deny the existence of angels. Beyond denying the resurrection, they deny the, that God has the power to intervene into this world. That is what they're saying. God, they, they, they have sort of what, what we've come today to, to call a deist approach to life. A deist approach says God exists, the earth exists, God started a clock, and now God has nothing to do with history or the universe. God pays no attention to it. He's there, but he's not actively involved. They deny the power of God. They deny God the right to be able to intervene into human history with the miraculous. Now how does this come to play in terms of the resurrection? How is it that they deny this denial of the power of God has something to do with the resurrection. Well, I want you to think back 
to creation. In creation, we have God working ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates out of nothing. But when it comes to man, God does create out of something, doesn't he? He creates out of the dust of the earth. He takes the dust, forms man from the dust of the earth, breathes into man, and man becomes what? A living being. What happens when you and I die to this material body? What happens to it? For dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. We become dust. The Sadducees are saying it is impossible for God to bring dust to life. Do you see what that's denying now? That's denying God as the creator of man. Because that's what God did with Adam. He took dust, formed that dust into a man, blew life into man, and man becomes a living being. The resurrection is simply that repeat. God is going to do what he did in creation once again. He is going to take the dust of Bob and Manon, and he's going to form that into a being, and he is going to breathe life into that dust so that Bob the Manon becomes a living being once again. What God does in the resurrection is no different than what God did in the creation. But the Sadducees deny God that power. Now notice where we're going with this. This is from the Torah. This is from their books. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is taking his son Isaac to Mount Moriah. He tells the servants to stay there and that he and Isaac are going up the mountain and that we shall return to you. Was Abraham lying to those people? No. God had already revealed to Abraham, by the time they got there, he has to kill Isaac on Mount Moriah. He has to sacrifice him. But Abraham believes that God can, out of the dead, bring life. So even if he kills Isaac on top of Mount Moriah, we shall return. God can bring life. How foolish from, a, from, from the perspective of the power of God to deny it. What was the exodus then? What, what is the exodus? What are the ten plagues? What about the water? What about the manna? What about the water from the rock? 
What about God's provision of quail? What about the victories of Joshua? See, if God is not allowed to be the God of power, you have no God. You are quite wrong. You're quite wrong, Jesus said. Why? Because you deny the power of God. But they also don't know the scriptures. Now notice what Jesus references. Jesus gives to them, okay, verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? <laughs> you got you to just appreciate Jesus, right? Here are the guys who know the books of Moses. These are the guys who have the books of Moses memorized. They know everything that's contained in the five books. Jesus says to them, don't you know what's in those books of Moses? Haven't, haven't you read them? Haven't you studied them? Now, I think sometimes we, we think of Jesus as this mild, passive, non-offensive person, right? Who just goes through those three years just, oh, yes, yes, yes. Sort of so weak and so helpless. You talk about throwing it back in their face. Haven't you read the books of Moses? You're supposed to be experts on this. What's with you guys anyway? What's your problem? You, you haven't studied that which you say you believe? So he takes us back. He takes us back to the passage about the bush. Exodus chapter 3. And as God calls out of the bush, he says, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. That's what Jesus quotes, right? Verse 26. And then Jesus comments, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, how does that passage prove it? How, how does that statement that we find in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, prove the resurrection? Because God says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham. Presently, I am the God of Abraham. By the time Exodus 3, verse 6 has been written, Abraham has been dead 500 years. He's nothing but dust in the cave of Machpelah. But God says... Oh, no. And not I was the God of Abraham. And I was, not past tense, but I am the God of Abraham. Abraham still exists. Abraham still has identity. Abraham, in his soul, by his soul, is still alive. But the fullness of this understanding 
in the Jewish mind is you can't, you can't separate a soul from a body. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that Abraham's body is already in heaven. But he is teaching the oneness of that. Where the soul is, so the body will be too. God is the God of Abraham. I am presently Abraham's God. Abraham still is serving me. Abraham is still worshiping me. Abraham is still following me. You're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know the power of God, nor do you know the Scriptures. We could look at Hebrews 11.10, Hebrews 11.13, Hebrews 11.16, which were all very well known to the Jewish people about Abraham's faith as a sojourner looking towards an eternal city, the city of God. That's why he lived in tents and never built a house. Because he understood he was but an alien here in this world. And that his true home was in glory. Notice how also Jesus teaches that there are angels. Remember what Sadducees believe? They deny the existence of angels. How foolish of them, right? Because they don't know the scriptures. Genesis chapter 19.1, Genesis chapter 19.15, Genesis chapter 28.12, Genesis chapter 32 verse 1, all which state clearly, clearly that angels exist. Yet Sadducees deny them. But we believe the books of Moses, we accept God's truth, but they deny the existence of angels. You are so wrong. In fact, at the end, Look at verse 27. You are quite wrong. You're deceiving yourselves. The truth is obvious, but you're deceiving yourselves. For the sake of your theology, for the sake of your lifestyle, for the sake of your, your heart, for the sake of your emotions, you turn away from the truth of God's Word. Even though you say you believe in it and accept only those five books, you don't even know them. And how clearly they teach not only, not only God's power to raise the dead, not only the fact that angels exist, but also the fact that there is a resurrection. But you say, what about their question? That wasn't their question, right? No, that wasn't their question. <laughs> but if somebody asks you a false dilemma, you first of all have to correct the falseness of the dilemma the falseness of their belief. He knows what they believe. He knows what's behind this. He knows they deny this. So let's first of all deal with that. 
Let's not deal with the surface thing. Let's deal with that which is underneath. Now, now let's deal with your question. So Jesus, again, what does Jesus reveal to us here? Well, he reveals to us something about angels, right? Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So he not only reveals to us the fact that angels exist, but that angels don't marry. Angels don't procreate. They don't reproduce. He re he's revealing to us the fact that angels are imperishable. They exist in glory forever. That's what he reveals about angels. They deny it, but Jesus reveals this truth. Now, that's something worthwhile for us to consider, right? Especially around February 14th. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor Bob? Why is there a baby angel that floats around with an arrow? Where do baby angels come from? Baby angels must come from adult angels, right? Foolish. You know neither the scriptures nor the truth of God's word. Right? There aren't baby angels. Get, get rid of the false theology. Comes to you in song, comes to you in country song. Sometimes it even comes to us in Christian songs. Okay? We know not the scriptures. Listen to Jesus. There is no marriage, there is no giving in marriage. What's the purpose of marriage? But to reproduce. It doesn't happen amongst the angels. Secondly, he also reveals to us something about glory. This is one of those passages where a lot of, where the breakdown of people is one of two things. When I read this verse, some of you go, oh, really? Oh, that's, that's just sad. Some of you have some questions about it, are going to go, hallelujah! There's no marriage in heaven. Now, some of you are going, Oh, God, that's too bad. I was kind of hoping that would continue. Others of you are going, oh, whew. no wonder they call it heaven, right? Both of those reactions are wrong because they are not biblical. What does Jesus reveal to us about glory? There is no marriage. Understand that. You know, Pastor Bob every once in a while runs into somebody, well, no, Pastor Bob, I'm not interested in anybody else because in heaven I want to still be married to. You're not going to be. Sorry to break the news to you. Sorry Jesus has to break the news to you, but you will not be married in heaven. It's nice you wear the wedding ring in your casket, but you're not going to be wearing it in glory. That's not coming along with you. 
Do we have our identities? Sure. I am the God of Abraham. I'm not the God of soul number 1600, I'm the God of soul number 1601, and the God of soul number 1602. I am the God of Abraham. He has identity. I am the God of Isaac. He has identity. And I am the God of Jacob. He has identity. But in glory, he's not the husband of. This is what Jesus is revealing to us about glory. There is no more marriage. There is no more reproduction. The Jewish belief, you see, and that's, what, that's what's behind this. The, the Sadducees are taking a view they don't hold, but saying, you know, most common folks today, Jesus, believe that once this resurrection occurs, life just happens as it happens here. We're just living it up there. So I'm going to farm, I'm going to raise animals, I, I'm going to polish and wax my car on Saturdays, I'm going to do some golfing. Oh yeah, and how many of us haven't read the obituary and now he's fishing with the saints in glory? Right? Life just continues up there. Jesus is saying, no. No. The most basic, the most intimate of human relationships is done. If the most intimate of our relationships no longer exists in heaven, do you think the rest of this trifling stuff continues? Jesus reveals to us something about glory in this passage. Because he reveals to us something about fulfillment. See, what are the reasons for marriage? Twofold, I told you. One I gave you, go and fill the earth. Well, that doesn't need to happen anymore in glory. That's done with. Glory is filled with those who are supposed to be there. There is no reason for more. But secondly, marriage came into existence for what reason? And God saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and so he created a helpmeet for him. In glory. All that I need is found in Christ. I need nothing else than Christ. He will be my all in all. Whatever I think my human needs are here upon earth, will be non-existent. Because all of my true needs, not my earthly needs, all of my glory needs are met fully in Christ. And I'm not going to be thinking, oh, I just wish I could go fishing once. I just wish I could go hunting once. 
I just wish I could go golfing one. Not going to be thinking it. Why? Because that would indicate something missing, something lacking. There is nothing lacking in Christ, in glory. Turn back with me in closing to the book of Colossians once again. We read it as our call to worship. But now I take you back to it once again. The book of Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Your life, your very breath, your very heartbeat, your very desire. When Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Meaning, it's all met. Fully, completely, forever, satisfied in Christ. Oh, Sadducees, you are quite wrong. You deceive yourselves. Why? Because the fullness of life was right there in their presence and they denied the reality of it. My friend, today again, Christ offers to you that relationship. He offers to you to be your all in all today for all eternity. And God's people say, Amen. Father, thank you for your word, truth given to us that we might live today and for all of eternity in its truth. In Christ's glorious name we pray and God's people say, amen.